Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Amanda Bible Williams. And I'm your other host, Rachel Myers. And this is the final week of This is the New Testament. It is our capstone episode of the Old Testament and New Testament series that we've been doing for the last 12 weeks. We are so excited to end this with like a beautiful bang, if we can say. Y'all, David Filson is back. We gave him a call after we recorded week two of the series, and we just asked him if he would come back and do the final episode with us. And this conversation, it's long, y'all, and it is worth it. So we are so excited. We're going to jump right into it. Y'all know David already from earlier in the series. He is a local pastor, a head of a lot of things, and a teacher of a lot of things. Dude knows his stuff, and we are so thankful that he gave us his time for this. Let's get right to it. Well, David, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. We had a conversation with you way back in week two of This is the Old Testament, and we had so much fun learning from you and talking with you that we immediately knew that we would want to get you back if we could for the final episode of this series. So I thank told you. I Just tell me when and where. <laughs> and you did. You, you said yeah. yes. yes. And we were so glad. Yeah, because we just kept thinking, man, I want to talk about Revelation yeah. with David Filson. Yeah. Like, let's, <laughs> let's talk about that. So we're going to get there. That's going to be our reward for going all the way through. Yeah. There's so many rewards. Yeah. But mm-hmm. it's going to be fun to land the plane, as we say. So this week we're starting in First Peter, and we're going to carry that through to Revelation, which means we are, as you guys know, we're in the general epistles, which just means that it's the letters not written by Paul. Um, they are not of any more or less importance. In fact, I think some would argue that they're under-celebrated because all of the Pauline epistles, we go to those so often. And so it's good to be in these general epistles. We get to start in First Peter. Yeah, written by no less than Peter. Right. And Jesus said, you know, representing the rest of the disciples, I'm going to give y'all, Yeah. right, the keys to the kingdom. It would be in the plural. That would be from the MSV the Mid-South version, um, we give y'all <laughs> oh, the keys y'all. to the kingdom, but yeah. it was to Peter, right? And so even though they're smaller letters, I mean, Peter's one of the pillars of the church. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly Paul's right. mind, right? Yeah. So. Which and, automatically just speaks so much of the gospel of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ that Peter, who, you know, is, man. So many just, of us can relate with him. Yeah. Like in so he, many ways. He, yeah. He flubs so many times. Yeah. But he is the rock on which Jesus built his church. Like that's, that blows my mind. I know. And so I love that we have the gift of these letters from yeah. him. Started out as a fisherman mm-hmm. and ended his life as a missionary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just beautiful. I mean, he's just doing his trade and Jesus called him right. to walk with him. Right. Let's start by reading. So actually, I want to read our key verse, David, I'd like for you to read that for us, verses 3 and 4, and then I want to skip to verses 13 through 16. Would you read those for us? So 3 and 4 and 13 through 16. That's right. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then verses 13 through 16. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I mean, that's a tall order. Yeah, it is. In that day 29 reading, we also have from Leviticus chapter 20, 
Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sets you apart. David, can you talk to us about when this holy living, right? Right. We know that we're not capable of it, right? Right. But when God says to us, be holy as I am holy, like, what do we learn from that? What does this mean? Okay, so a couple of things. One, holiness as it's used to describe him and as it's used to describe us. So first, Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Smoke filled the room. The doorpost shook. The seraphim with three sets of wings, with two they flew, two they covered their feet, two they covered their face. They cry out, what? Holy, 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 holy. holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Of course, that's Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh is holy, but not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. If you want to, like right here in our book, you know, to emphasize the key verses three and four, they're in sort of a kind of a mustard yellow font there. We, we change the color of a font or we'll you know increase the size or, or change the style of font to emphasize something. Of course, you didn't have word processors then. And so the way that Hebrew literature emphasizes a word or a phrase is through things like parallelism, repeating it, dynamic parallelism, or just repetition. And so to say something twice is like putting a big exclamation point on the end of it. What's unheard of is to do it three times. That's mm-hmm. like really breaking with Hebrew idiom. And it's so like holy, bold underline, holy, exclamation yeah, point. Bold underline, <laughs> exclamation point. It is shouting caps because how do you describe the infinite yeah. otherness, the infinite purity and holiness of God with just saying that he's holy? So God is holy. So he is set apart. He is the creator. We're the creature. But for us, we are to be holy, and you're right, it's a tall order, so we think, okay, I don't know that I have the right stuff to make it to holiness. Well, notice every time that we are referred to, more commonly than anything else in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, we are referred to in the plural as the hagios in the Greek, the hagios. That is the plural noun form of the verb hagiadzo, which means I set apart. I make holy, or if I can say it this way, I holify. Hmm. So what we are being told, when we are told to be holy, for I, the Lord, have set you apart, we are being told two things, who we are positionally, by God's grace, we are sanctified, we are holified, we are set apart, Mm -hmm. and we are to be practically what we are positionally. We are to live out that holiness, not in an effort to earn our salvation, but to evidence our salvation, not to... Ooh, I like that, yeah. You're right, not to deserve our salvation, but to demonstrate our salvation, not to merit our salvation, but to manifest our salvation. So we are positionally holy. We are holified. Again, that's the most common designation of Christians. Yeah. We are the hagios. We are the saints, the holy ones. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's why God views us. So when you say in the New Testament that that's the most common, like what word are we reading in the New Testament that is saying that? Is it saints? Yeah, it's the word saints. Okay. So in your English Bibles, when yeah, you yeah. see saint or saints, you are seeing an English translation of the word, if it's in the singular, hagios. Okay. If it's in the plural, we're the hagios. We are the holified ones or the set apart ones. And mm-hmm. so we are set apart. And to understand, that's the New Testament way of saying what the Old Testament people of God were to be all along, chosen, set apart. And that's why Peter will eventually say, mm-hmm. right, you know, but you are a chosen race, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, 
right? He says, once you were not a people, now you are a people. Now you are his set-apart people. Once you were not, but now you are, and we exist to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is a big deal in Peter, is this idea of us being saints, set-apart, because you know, First Peter is a constant call to holiness yeah. in everything, even when he talks about the word hope there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look at verse 3, he's given us a new birth into a living hope. Yeah. And that word hope is really important in Peter because he's writing to a group of Roman men and women, boys and girls, yeah. who are just hoping that they don't become you know, a, literally a human torch in one of Nero's garden parties. They're hoping mm-hmm. they're not going to be thrown to the lions the next week. And so they're suffering persecution. And he's speaking to them about this hope. Well, why is our hope a living hope? Because ultimately, our hope mm-hmm. is not this conceptual thing. Our hope is a person. That's right. Right, and it involves propositional truth, mm-hmm. but it is more than proposition. It's a person. It's Christ, and He's mm-hmm. alive, and so therefore our hope is alive. Which is the author of Hebrews in six nineteen says, "But we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, both steadfast and true, which enters the presence beyond the veil." Yeah. So what he's saying that hope that we have that anchors our soul is Jesus, That's because Jesus. Jesus is the one who went the beyond the hope. veil for mm-hmm. us. And so this word hope is crucial in Peter because he's writing to these persecuted Christians. And he wants them to ground themselves in the reality of the resurrected mm-hmm. Christ. And that's why, like, even when you get to, say, First Peter 3, 15 and 16, where this hope comes up again, yeah, it's in a little bit of a different context where he says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ the Lord as holy, always be ready to give an apologion, the Greek word for apologetic, always be ready to give a defense. When someone asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, but this do with gentleness and respect. Yeah. So we are called to give an apologion or an apologetic for what? This living hope that we have. So we are called these common, right, Roman men and women and boys and girls who are followers of Christ. None of them have PhDs in theology, but they're yeah. called to be apologists. And in calling them yeah. to be apologists, he's calling them to be defenders of what? Hope. They're called to be hope defenders. Yeah. So we're all called to be hope defenders. Yeah. And so it's interesting that he uses these words that the inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and Mm -hmm. unfading when he's talking about this living hope that's kept in heaven for them, especially considering his audience who, like you said, I mean, they are perishable. Yeah. Right? Right. And the things that they hope to hope on are all perishable. So this hope is not going anywhere. Everything that Rome was built on, everything that was prized in the Roman Empire, these grand magnificent things of gold and worldly goods and stuff, Peter is saying what you have, your faith, though it's being refined through persecution, is something that will not perish, and it's being held for you, this inheritance. I love verse 5, you are being guarded by God's power yeah. mm-hmm. through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So like, it's there, it's secure, it's ready we are, yes, be holy as I am holy, and we're being guarded by God's mm-hmm. power. Yeah. You know, that I love that clarification of the like the holyfied ones. That's yeah. so helpful, even yeah. in understanding. You know, in so many of these letters that we've talked through from the New Testament, mm-hmm. I mean, we just talked about James last week and how, and there's, you know, faith without works is dead. So, like, there's this partnership of like, yes, what God is doing in us, but we have a, you know, a good thing to guard and God's word to uphold and a faith to contend for. You know, we're going to talk about all those things. And so I love 
that image yeah. of, of, being, of guarded. being guarded. Being guarded. Well, that, yeah. that lies at our first level identity statement as a believer, right? We think about getting to know each other and, you know, we'll ask, well, who are you? What's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? Whatever. And sometimes we are searching for ways to sort of identify ourselves and make our mark. Who are we? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jude, that little slender sliver of an mm-hmm. epistle right before the book of Revelation, I mean, it doesn't even have chapters. It's just Jude. Yeah. He's got verses, not chapters. Yeah, yeah. This idea here in First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, you are being guarded. Jude 1 begins how? By stating our first level identity statement as those who are called, loved, and kept. Mm. That's the believer's mm-hmm. first level identity statement. That's my Twitter profile. We are called, my loved, Instagram and kept. Profile. Yeah. And in a world right now where there's so much like uncertainty and we, you know, you just see anxiety on the rise and you know, everybody just feels like they got both mm-hmm. feet planted firmly in midair. That little, <laughs> almost easy to miss epistle right before the book of Revelation comes out swinging and says, I'm going to tell you exactly who you are. That yeah. one little bitty letter, yeah. tiny as it is, says, I'm going to sum up the whole of what the Bible says about your identity. You're called, you're loved, you're kept. That's it. That's who you That's are. It. And yeah, so we're guarded. Yeah. And then we get another. So letter. as we transition to Second Peter, yeah. talk to us about you know like what are we seeing new in Second Peter that we didn't see in First Peter? One thing I can see mm-hmm. is, you know, even in the key verse, it's from Second Peter chapter one verse three. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So here we're not seeing the word holiness, but we are seeing the word godliness. Godliness. How, how is that different? Yeah. So Paul says that we are to be, this is, of course, in the book of Ephesians, that we are to be imitators of God. We're to bear a family resemblance. So when people see my kids, they'll always say, you know, you can't deny them. They in look, the South, they say you favor. Yeah, they, they, yeah. yeah you favor, yeah. right? You know, you, they favor you. Now, we're praying they outgrow that. Uh, <laughs> but for now, they, they favor me. Yeah. Anyway, we are to bear a family resemblance to our Father. Yeah our Father God, and so godliness is us bearing a family resemblance. Now, I think one of the key differences between First and Second Peter is whereas First Peter, he is laying down some key theological themes about the church and about the believer as being the temple of God, yeah. that temple Is it the imagery, living stones? The living stones, right? Yeah. Because, because think about this. Coming you know, Jesus, from the rock. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus talks about, you know, the stones of the temple being thrown down. And so if you were to be look, anytime you would be looking at the temple, you would see the stones that, you know, from the standpoint of masonry comprise yeah. the temple. And Peter is saying, now this is kind of that same thing that you see in, you know, say Second Corinthians, we see Paul talking about us being the temple of the living God, et cetera. Peter is saying, you are those stones. You are the temple. That's his way of saying, you are the true temple. And so that that temple idea that we talked about way back when I was here the first mm-hmm. time, that really the Bible is a tale of trees and temples. Mm-hmm. And the commitment eschatologically is that we would realize our identity as the temple, mm. because what is the temple? What's the purpose of the temple? God's covenantal, intimate, relational presence with his people. Well, us being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, of course, yeah. right? Just as the Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle, the, mm-hmm. the tent of meeting, so the Holy Spirit indwelling us makes of us temples. And so, you know, First Peter, temple imagery, suffering figured heavily into yeah. First Peter. yeah. And practical godliness and 
husbands and wives and some material in there about the church and the idea of the responsibility of shepherds or elders in the church. Again, he's writing to persecuted Christians, and so he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties upon Mm -hmm. the Lord because he cares for you. So there's a lot of Mm -hmm. practical stuff in there. But I think one of the ways that 1 and 2 Peter differ and yet tie together is that if you go back to 1 Peter, where I quoted a second ago from 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, but in your heart set apart Christ the Lord is holy, always be ready to give an apologion or a defense uh, when someone asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But this do with gentleness and respect. We're to be apologists. We're to be hope defenders. Yeah. We're to be able to defend the knowledge of God. Well, Second Peter tells us why that's important because okay. Second Peter is dealing with heresy. Okay. False teachers yeah. creeping into the church. So it's it's almost like Peter's like, I told you so. Yeah. Back in my first letter, I told you why all of you, men, women, boys, and girls, needed to be able to give an apologion for this living hope that will yeah. never be taken away from you. But you've got to be hope defenders. Because guess what? In my second letter, I'm going to write to you about the reality of false teaching, heretics coming in among you. And so there's a lot of similarities then between 2 Peter and Jude in that regard, because both of them, and I can say more about that in Jude here in just a second, but the thing we have to remember there is, and this, of course, tie back into something Paul wrote, but when Peter says to give a defense or to give an apologion, but this do with gentleness and respect. So we're to be hope defenders. We're to be defenders of hope, but we're to do it with gentleness and respect. So we're to be the welcoming committee. Yeah. But because false teaching, such as you see here in Second Peter or Jude or Colossians or First John or Corinth, you know, Paul says in Second Corinthians uh, ten thirty six, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We demolish arguments and tear down every pretension set against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought of the obedience of Christ. So we are to defend hope, mm-hmm. being the welcoming committee. And the wrecking crew. Yeah. We don't mm. wreck people. Yeah. We right. wreck pretensions set against the knowledge of God that, that lead people yeah. into bondage. And yeah. so he says, here's the thing, defend that Christian doctrine. Yeah. Defend the biblical teaching because it's essential to your growth in godliness. It's essential to the health of the church corporately, and it's essential to Christians' individual spiritual health. And so we have everything we need. For life and godliness mm-hmm. through the knowledge of him. Now, that word godliness here is inseparable from sanctification. So we have what we need yeah. for living the Christian life and being godly through our knowledge of him. Mm-hmm. Well, go back to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. And what yeah. does he say? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so we have our knowledge of God through his word, and it brings about the godliness that Peter's talking about or the sanctification for which Jesus prays for us yeah. in John 17, 17. As I was preparing for this episode, I was seeing that in Second Peter, there's actually a moment in chapter 3 where he references Paul's letters. Yes. And he says, I think verses 15 through 16, he says, Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to us. And then he says, He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them, which we can all relate with. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and then he says, The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of scriptures. So you're right that this theme in the Pauline epistles, in the general epistles, is this guarding of the truth, guarding of ourselves, and it's God guarding us. Yes, God is guarding us by the truth that we are called to guard. Yeah. You know, Paul told Timothy, the church of God is the pillar and support of truth. 
So the church doesn't make up truth. We right, right, are right. the pillar yes. and buttress of truth. So buttress of truth. The other thing that, that Peter's saying there, think about what Peter's saying about the writings of Paul. He's not just saying that they're hard to understand, but he's saying what? People distort them like they do the rest of Scripture. Right. Well, what would have been the rest of Scripture at that time? Septuagint. Uh, yeah, which would have been the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old, Old Testament. Yeah. So, And most of the time when the apostles are quoting the Old Testament, they're actually quoting the Septuagint, mm-hmm. which was the Greek translation of that. So the Old Testament was the canonized, settled Scripture. Peter is making an incredibly bold claim yeah. about the inspiration and canonical authority of the letters of Paul when he says they distort them just like they do the rest of Scripture. Huh. So he was saying the writings of Paul are on par with huh. the Old Testament. Yeah. And the emphasis on the word is seen not only there, but I love this. Because I think sometimes if I could go back to any scene in the Bible, I could go back in time and just be there, <laughs> I got to know. Be? I got to know. It would be the transfiguration. Yeah. I would want to go back and just kind of hide in a bush and, you know, hide behind a tree. And here you have Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. And as it were, he transfigures, giving them a sight of his pre incarnate glory. Mm. Glory, right? Doxa in the New Testament Greek, radiance. Kavod in the Hebrew Old Testament, weightiness. And so Jesus shows them just a glimpse of his eternal weightiness and radiance. Peter recognizes it. Because you remember what it's Peter I'm going to build what? Let's build some tents. Yeah. Yeah. You think like REI, we're going glamping or something uh-huh. here? No, Peter was not thinking about glamping. Peter was thinking, wait, when that kind of glory appears... It needs to reside in a temple. In the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, in the tent, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the tent, yeah. So exactly. We got to so house this. We, yeah, we got to house this. And so he's thinking about the way the Old and New Testament come together. That Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But then look what he says here. In chapter 2, verse 1, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 of chapter 1, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you. There's that thing. They're myths. They're false teachers, mm-hmm. right? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So we were there, we saw it, can't be denied, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to Mm. which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying something about the inspiration of Scripture there, but what's he saying? We always are wanting experiences in the church today. If yeah. I just have some kind of powerful experience that would be undeniable. And Peter says, dude, I saw Jesus transfigured right in front of my face, yeah. but I have the Word of God. Yeah. I have this more sure word of God. Pay attention to that, right? Yeah. That I think is really instructive for the way we should view the Bible when we are always clinging. If I just have some kind of experience, then I would believe. And Peter wants to say, you have the word. You have that backwards. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, very good. You had that backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Because Peter did not understand that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration apart from what? His understanding of the word. That's why he went to the tent. Yeah, he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. That's why he said tents. We got to get tents. We got to know what to do. Yeah, yeah. He knew what to do because contextually he knew his Bible, and so that incredible experience for him was only seen through the lens of Scripture. Mm -hmm. 
That's why, that's why it made sense yeah. to him. I love this context that you've given us of this tent theme, this mm-hmm. dwelling theme, because even earlier in chapter one of Second Peter, in verse 13, he's talking about his body as a tent. He's saying, yeah. I think it's right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get this theme of tents, and we also, in First Peter, get the theme of the stones, right? Yeah. Jesus understood his whole mission and ministry in the context of temple imagery, be it the garden temple in the Garden of Eden, be it the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in right. the wilderness wandering, be it Solomon's temple, be it second temple during the time of Jesus, Herod's temple, or Jesus saying, I am the temple, or Paul saying, you are the temple, or Peter saying, you are the tent, you are the living stones. You know, Paul speaks of our body as a tent back in Second Corinthians 5. So we right, need to yeah. understand ourselves as we are temples. We are the tent of meeting. We are. If the point of the temple in the scripture is God's intimate covenantal dwelling with his people, mm-hmm. we don't have to make some kind of pilgrimage to Mount Zion every time we gather for worship, right? You, you look at Hebrews 12 and 13, and I'll, you know, I love it sometimes people will say, well, how many people were at your church this Sunday? Mm-hmm. You say, it was a massive crowd. Really? How many people are coming? Oh, we only had maybe you know a couple hundred at church, but it was a massive crowd. Well, that's not really that big. There are bigger churches than that. No. What do we read at the end of the book of Hebrews? You have come (laughs) to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and there are angels in festal garments gathered all around you, myriad upon myriad. So when we gather, we are corporately the temple and heaven is touching earth, right? Corporate worship on a Sunday morning is us on earth entering into not just a building, the sanctuary, we're entering the heavenly sanctuary and so the crowd is enormous because the saints who've gone on before us, all of the angelic creatures, and we are participating in what we are designed for, which is temple fellowship and temple worship. And that is the utter motivation of Paul and Peter here, yeah. and Peter in this text. And if that doesn't make you anxious for Sunday to get here, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. I think that it helps me because I was going like, well, is it tents or is it temple or is it rocks? You know, but we're all talking about the same thing. They were all fluid of these, with their imagery. All of these yeah. represent the dwelling place, whether yeah. they all refer back to either the temple, the tabernacle, which was a tent or a Yeah, but then you building. further get like in, is it in Corinthians when Paul talks about the treasure in jars of clay? Yeah. yeah. So that we know that this gift is not from us, but from yeah. the Lord. So it's like we... It is all of those things. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how the theme of love is evident through all of Scripture, God's love, Mm -hmm. but it just seems like it's just getting more and more concentrated as we arrive at the end of of the New Testament, at least to me. And so in these three letters from John... This is the same John that wrote the eponymously named gospel, and then also the same John who wrote Revelation. But in 133 verses across the three books, love is mentioned more than 50 times. Yeah, that's why he's known as the apostle of love. Think about this. The son of thunder, one of the sons of thunder, (laughs) right? is now known as the Apostle of Love. It's these clunky disciples who like started out for us in the Gospels, and we saw them as baby Christians, and now they're learning and growing in their faith, and they're becoming... They're becoming more tender, right? As Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 59, would say, they are becoming more possessed of that lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. And so you see with John, a son of thunder. Yeah. Right? 
putting it out there. Mm-hmm. I feel like and a son of thunder sometimes. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now as the apostle of love, and I think the emphasis on love, John in Ephesus, we do not have a proper hermeneutic for reading the scriptures or a proper interpretive approach to reading the scriptures if we are not willing to two things, to see it through the lens of suffering and embrace suffering when it comes into our lives as Bible school. Hmm. So suffering comes into our lives, it's time then to get your Bibles out because you are in a unique place to understand the Scripture Mm. that the original authors and readers understood the Scripture because they didn't read the Bible apart from suffering. And so they're suffering persecution as well. And there's also the reality of false teachers. That's part of what 1 John is about. You know, one of the things that uh, Satan, 1 John you know, where he talks about the fact that we've seen him, we've touched him, our hands have handled Mm -hmm. him concerning the word of truth, right? It's this very tactile language like, John, why do you say we've touched him, we've seen him, we've handled him? Mm. Well, it's because he says in verse 7 of 2 John, verse 7, that many deceivers have gone out into the world. So all three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are concerned with the reality of deceivers having gone out into the world. Well, back in first, and then really contextually, the deception that was afoot then, and the reason that John kept saying, we've touched him, we've seen him, we've our hands have handled him. And he says, if anybody says that Christ has not come into the flesh, he's an antichrist. Hmm. Well, there was an early embryonic form of Gnosticism called docetism. Docetism is from the Greek word dokeo, which means I appear or I seem. Well, Gnosticism at its heart says that Essentially, there's a dualism between uh, the material and the immaterial. And certain forms of, of early Gnosticism said that the material is bad. It's corrupt. Material is bad. Only that which is good is a spirit. And so if Jesus truly was incarnate, then he was bad. And so Jesus didn't actually have flesh. In order for him to be kind of an ascended Gnostic guru, he had to be untainted by the physical. He only appeared to be physical, like a phantom, but he was really just kind of a spark of the demiurge. He was a a spiritual being that appeared like he was physical. And John is like, if there wasn't the incarnation, there's no gospel. Yeah. And so he says, we touched him, we saw him, our hands felt of him because (laughs) he was battling that early form of docetism which was said he was kind of like a phantom. He appeared yeah. to be in flesh, but he really wasn't. Uh, yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, friends, I want to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about a new study that we have starting at the end of September. If you spent much time reading the Bible, you know what it feels like to see yourself in some of the characters you read about. God often uses ancient true stories to soften our hearts, to show us our sin, and in the case of the book of Hosea, to remind us of how faithful and in pursuit of us he always is. This story is so deeply heartbreaking and yet incredibly redeeming on a number of levels. This unique picture of God's faithfulness in the book of Hosea is a can't miss, and Amanda and I are particularly excited about the guests that we have planned for this podcast series. As you know, though, the best Shiri's Truth experience is so much richer than just the podcast. This is just the preview trailer or the pep talk for your daily Bible reading ahead of you this week. You will want your Hosea study books for this series, and if you aren't a subscriber, now is the time to place those orders so that you can have them in time for Hosea in September. So head to shopshereadthruth.com now and use code HOSEA10 for 10% off your Hosea study book. That's H-O-S-E-A-1-0 at shopshereadthruth.com. 
This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community, and they're offering our listeners a free trial premium membership because you are a human and you were born to create. Learn, express, and discover what you can make with online classes from Skillshare. There are so many fascinating classes on Skillshare on topics like graphic design, creative writing, even web design. There's one that sounds super fun to me called Storytelling 101. It talks about character, conflict, context, and craft. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, a hobbyist or a master, you are creative. That's why Skillshare has classes for every skill level. With short lessons, hands-on projects, and classes designed for real life, you can tap into the creativity we all have inside. Skillshare helps you move your creative journey forward without putting life on hold. You'll create real projects and get the support of fellow creatives so you can accomplish real growth Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash SheReadsTruth, where our listeners get a one-month free trial of premium membership. That's one month free at Skillshare.com slash SheReadsTruth. Let's read some from these, these little letters. They're so packed, and even just the key verses are just beautiful in their own right. I'm going to read them off for us, and then let's circle back and dig in a little bit. Yeah. But listen to these. We have First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm. And then Second John, we have verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to His commands. This is the command, as you have heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love. I love how circular that is. Mm -hmm. It's so, so Mm -hmm. good. And then from 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. So we have so much of this, like, walk in love, walk in truth. Mm -hmm. Like, what does it look like to live in light of all of this that we're saying? And yeah. David, what do we need to know about these books, about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Well, I'll say this. We're walking in truth, and the fact that John says, I have no greater joy than my children. Uh-huh. So he's aged at this point. Yeah. He is aged. Yeah. And in his aged twilight season, mm-hmm. he wants his children to be living a life of love because that is the unassailable apologetic. Yeah. Right. Love is an undeniable, unmistakable thing. But I think one of the other things that we need to get here is when we turn the pages in First John chapter three, verses one to four. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And the reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And little children, what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes hmm. purifies himself as he is pure. So there we're going back to our original yeah. uh, Petrine reference to Leviticus of being pure, being holy. John Petrine is up, Peter. Peter, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Pauline and Petrine. is Petrine, yes. yeah. And so we go back to that Petrine emphasis on purity, holiness. John's picking it up as well. If you have this hope, you're going to purify yourself as he is pure. Be holy as I'm holy. Well, what is our hope? What is the hope that we have? And it's when he says, when he appears, we shall see him, for we shall be like him as he is. Mm. Theologians throughout the history of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, they talk about the beatific vision or the beautiful vision. 
and the beatific vision is transformative. Have you ever seen something that once you've seen it, you'll never be the same? Like, mm. you know... Like the Grand Canyon. Like the Grand Canyon. Like sure. something just sure. spectacular just, that you like, cannot describe. I can't. Yeah. I'll never be the same after I've seen that. Mm-hmm. That is just a glimpse, just a glimpse of what the vision of the resurrected Christ is going to be. It is going to be so overwhelming, and it's going to leave such an indelible mark on us that we will go from sanctification, the process of sanctification, to glorification, because we are going to see him. And notice what John says, we will see him as As he he is. is. And so it's not going to be, Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 17 to 3 to 59, says, it's not simply going to be like we look with our bodily eyes at that cup or that table. Yeah, It is going to be seeing him as he is. It will be an immediate sight of the soul. We will know him. And knowing is not conceptual, it's intimate and relational. And that knowing will be transformative and we will be glorified and we will be like him. For we shall see him. We will no longer, as Paul says, be looking through a glass darkly Dimly or like a eye. foggy window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We will be prostantheon, face to face. And when we see him, that vision is going to be transformative. And that's the hope that's held out for us. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And think about it, John's getting close to thinking, I'm going to get there, right? Yeah. We're going to have yeah. that beatific vision. And that's why he is so feisty, as it were, in these letters to say, defend the faith. Don't let false teaching rob this hope from my little children. Because yeah. it's so good. And this coming from <laughs> another one of the three disciples, it was Peter, James, and John, right? On the Mount of Transfiguration. So Bingo. He Very was good. there, yeah. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> they, what, what did they see? So like That left in a, just that experience. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't the beatific vision, but that was the glimpse of it. Is it that right? It was like the trailer to the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the sneak so preview. So when he talks about this, he may not have seen this yet, but he knows mm. that there is a hope. Oh, he hasn't seen it, but he's saying, look. I've seen a, the trailer. I've seen a trailer to the movie. I've yeah. seen a trailer. Like, if you see a, a coming preview trailer, you're like, man, it's going to be a great movie. I saw the trailer. Yeah. Like my kids always got excited yeah. about Marvel trailers. Yes. Sure. And it has to show just the right amount of information because if it shows too much, spoiler. then you're like, it's, this is not a good. This is this sometimes is not, trailers are so long that you've given too much away. This movie, <laughs> yeah, you've given too much away. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And even so in their good. point in sanctification, think about this: Peter, James, and John at that moment, they still thought they were following a revolutionary. They still thought that the goal of all of this was to get the oppressive boot of Rome off their right. necks. Yes, right. They had not yet been in the process of post-resurrection mm-hmm. sanctification. In other words, show me the glory. They couldn't handle the glory at that right. point, but they got a little glimpse of it, just I like Moses did. But now post-resurrection, the process of sanctification, the word mm-hmm. forming them, forming us, we are going to be ready for the beatific vision, and that will just take us over the edge of sanctification into glorification, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Okay, let's go to Jude. Yeah, oh. I'm excited to talk about Jude. It's I another feel like one Jude of those little guys. Jude is such a sleeper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jude's about to wake you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as he reaches for his Greek New Testament, I That's like where right. this is headed. We enjoyed as David came in. He had his, you know, his legacy book and his Bible, and he also had his Greek New Testament. And we were like, "Read to us from the Greek New Testament." <laughs> you just read from this, like I read from so fun my English Bible. So cool. All right. Guys, the Bible wasn't written in English. It's good to be reminded. It is good to be reminded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, I love the old King James. I memorized, as a kid, I memorized the King James Version of the Bible. And, you know, then I, 
you had the New King James, and then I, mm-hmm. for years, cut my teeth on the NIV and the NASB and the ESV. Now I tell people that when I quote the Bible, it's, you know, you add my own translation of Scripture, it's the MSV, the Mid-South Version. But here's the thing, Jude, the book of Jude, you think it's a sleeper. No, we're the sleepers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're the sleepers because we think it's such a thin little sliver of an epistle. Mm-hmm. It can't be, but man... Jude packs a punch because the same thing that John's worried about is the same thing that Peter was worried about is the reality of false teachers among them. And so Jude, of course, begins, and I don't know if we have it here in our our legacy book. I'm sure you want to read it from that. But he gives us our first level identity statement there, right? Jude is servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James. Now think about this. He was the brother of James. Do the math on this. Mm Mm-hmm. He's the brother, yeah. Help brother of James, brother of Jesus. Half brother of Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Jude is so humble, he doesn't... He, he doesn't, doesn't even list it. He doesn't flex his cred, He man. says a servant I of mean, Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus I'd Christ. I'd like to think I wouldn't flex my cred, but I don't know. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, know. I'd like Good to think he wouldn't. Yeah. But he says, I'm a brother of James. Yeah. Right? But we know he would have been the half brother of right. Jesus. as James the half brother. But then he says, to those who are the called. Mm. The set-apart ones, the sanctified ones, right? The called-out ones, loved by God the Father and kept. So there we are. We're called, loved, and kept. Then he says down in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith Mm -hmm. that was once for all delivered the saints. That knowledge that we're growing godliness in, that word that sanctifies us, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, here's the interesting thing. He says here, and... Here's the Greek word, epigonizestai. Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Epigonizestai, <laughs> right? That we are to hyper-fight, hyper-wrestle, hyper-contend, hyper-struggle. That's what the word means. Mm, we that's are, what contend in our... Okay. Yeah, in some ways, contend is a little tame. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. it. Epigonizestai, overdo it, he's saying. Struggle hard, struggle vehemently. Mm. And so we are to contend for what? The faith once for all delivered the saints. And then he goes and tells us in the body of the letter, because these false teachers have slipped in among you. Yeah. And as he describes them, it's the same kind of people that Peter is worried about, the same kind of false teachers Peter is worried about in Second Peter. And then when you get to the end of Jude's little letter, mm. yeah. he makes an incredible statement at the very end. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up, in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. He says, Gemes di agapetoi epicoidamuntes, etoiste agatate human piste. Building yourselves up. That is a present active participle mm. in the Greek. Now, if same thing in English. Something that's present tense and a participle is the idea of an ongoing thing. We are to, in an ongoing way, epicoidamuntes, be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. You know, like at the beginning of each year, January rolls around, and everybody thinks, hey, I got to get serious about Jim and Jesus. I got to go to the gym. I got to get serious about Jesus again. You ever like sign up for a gym membership, and you have the best of intentions, but it turns into like maybe a twice-a-month plan. We're now, let's not, not be stepping on toes here, not be David. stepping on toes yeah. <laughs> Jude is saying, continually be building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Yeah. I mean, that's why y'all exist. That's right, yeah. That's why y'all exist, mm-hmm. to get people in the Word and mm-hmm. say, build yourselves up in the Word. Mm-hmm. Because be, you can't be contend building. if you're not built up in the Word. You don't know what to contend for. 
how are you going to contend? Right. How are you going to epigonidzestai yeah. if we're not in God's gym, epicoidamuntes, <laughs> yeah. continually building ourselves up? That's right. Yeah. 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 You read from part of the end of Jude, but I just want to read the key verse oh, because yeah, also it's just, it's a favorite benediction. Mm-hmm. Will you read that for us, David? Mm-hmm. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I mean, that is God getting the last word. I love that. There's enough theology in those (laughs) If you were asleep during the service. Oh, my goodness. There's enough theology there. I mean, you could preach that for a month of of Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. I want to keep talking about benedictions because it's so interesting to me, but I do even more than that. I want to move on to Revelation and make sure we have plenty of time there. Which is kind of the benediction of the whole Bible. Which is the benediction of the Bible in many ways. It is God getting the last word. So you know that all 66 books that we have in this series been looking at relatively briefly, but for everyone, we've kind of been asking, like, what's happening in this book, and how does it tie with the whole Mm -hmm. of Scripture? And so when we look at the book of Revelation, it's uniquely, it is not an epistle, you know, like it is apocalyptic literature. It's its own genre. It's its own genre. And we get a little bit, am I right, of apocalyptic literature in Daniel. In Daniel. But the the whole of Daniel is, of course, a a prophecy, but yeah. there's apocalyptic in there. And yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, Revelation is a unique genre, mm-hmm. which is kind of a fun word to say. Oh, yeah. Right? You just feel Do kind feel of French. uppity. French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's my genre. Genre. <laughs> yeah. So it's a unique genre, but it had to be. Mm-hmm. It had to be <laughs> because it wasn't that the Apostle John was just like, you know, artistically, I've just hit a flat spot, and I want to kind of branch out mm-hmm. into another genre. No, it was apocalyptic. It was code language because I don't know that the letter would have ever gotten off the island of Patmos had it not been so seemingly obfuscated. Okay. Hmm. I can only imagine the guards on Patmos would let this letter go back to Ephesus and you know be spread among the churches. If they understood it. If they had understood it. So Instead, back up- they probably thought, this guy is off his rocker. Right, here, you can have yeah, this here, letter. Have it. Yeah. Now you see why we've got him on the island yeah. here. So back us up and give us, like, you just mentioned Patmos and the even like Ephesus. Give us the circumstances of the writing of this letter because, like you said, not only is the genre unique, but the circumstances are pretty unique. Yeah, the circumstances are unique. Peter, of course, is writing his letter around 64 mm-hmm. because he's still able to talk about living stones, right? Yeah. And so we know that the temple was brought down in 70. Mm -hmm. So he is saying nothing. Peter is saying nothing in his letter about anything post-destruction of Jerusalem. So that will tell us what? That Peter's writing during the reign of Nero, who was a madman. A lot of Bibles, I know, like the I have the He Reads Truth Bible, there are all these great charts and timelines to kind of give you context and so forth. That's right. But it's important to know with the book of Revelation— that there's a different, even more monstrous person on the scene, as monstrous as Nero was. And look, he would literally cover Christians in pitch, mm. set them on fire to light his garden parties. So imagine you're in such a debauched like You weren't society. kidding when you said that earlier. No, no, in this no, episode. not kidding at all. Yeah. 
imagine it's such a debauched, barbaric society that you go to this elegant, imperial garden party, and what is lighting the way are not cute little candles and sacks the way we do sometimes yeah, when we get yeah. up, but human beings set ablaze mm. as torches. Even more notorious and sinister and barbaric was the Emperor Domitian. And so John is writing to Christians in all of this code language to remind them of a great many things, not the least of which is to persevere in the face of unspeakable suffering. And so this is happening in AD 95. 95, 96. 96, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then 25 years earlier, the letters from John, 1, 2, and 3, were written right around AD 70. But nothing had been written since AD 70 that is in the canon. Right. Okay. And so then as Revelation begins, there's this dream, and it just says, write. These words are faithful and true. And so what do we, like, how can you summarize Revelation and how it, you know, is the Alpha and Omega moment um, Mm -hmm. for all of Scripture? But I know that's a lot to cover in the little time we have remaining, but what do you want us to know about Revelation? Okay, I would say, right, for these words are faithful and true, is going to be a great encouragement to believers who can look back and see, okay, Jerusalem was sacked in 70. Rome has become even more monstrous in her rage and persecution of believers. Rome is burned. They blame Christians. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you you go back to, so Peter writes around 64, it's about a year or so after that, that Rome is set on fire. So what does Nero do? The Christians have done this. Yeah. These cannibals who talk about eating flesh and drinking blood, Mm -hmm. they're to blame. And so if you think about that, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, the temperature on persecution of believers has turned up greatly. They're responsible for the burning of Rome. They're cannibalistic. They are usurpers of our Pax Romana, of our great peace, our great empire. Mm -hmm. They are the usurpers. So here Jesus says, I am walking among the churches. So you have the seven churches, you have this series of sevens, yeah. seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven, seven churches. Well, why is that? Because in the Jewish gematria, seven is a number of fulfillment of completion, fullness. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm walking among all of the churches and I get it. These have been some unspeakably hard years. And notice the way that Revelation begins. John says, I have this vision of Christ. And he describes Christ in in many of the ways that you would hear out of apocalyptic literature like Daniel. And it's this vision of Christ that says that he was clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze. He has this vision of the resurrected Christ. And he says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So this resurrected Christ who is coming to assure the church that their victory is secure, even though everything looks just the opposite, John says, this Christ is not to be trifled with. The resurrected Christ, I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Then he laid his hand on me and says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am everything. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I, I have the keys of death in Hades. Because what do we fear? What do we ultimately fear? Why did they fear persecution? Why did they fear Rome? Why did they fear Domitian? Because he had the keys of death in his hands. Mm, Yeah. They could wipe out 
swaths of Christians at will. Yeah. Jesus says, no, I'm the one of whom it is said in Hebrews chapter 2, I came to destroy him who has the power of death and deliver all those who their fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. I now have the keys of life and death, right? Amen. In other words, if we fear this overwhelming, you know, John falls at his feet like a dead man. You fear the Lord, you don't have to fear anything else, especially death. That's just some of what's in the first chapter. Then, of course, he moves into a series of of letters to the churches. And there are different things going on in the churches. You know, you have in Ephesus, they've lost their first love. Similar in in Smyrna, there is kind of a waning of their passion for Christ. In Pergamum, they've allowed false teaching in there. In Pergamum, they have done what Peter was concerned about, what John was concerned about, what Jude was concerned about. And on and on it goes, and you have all of these things going on from lack of wisdom and discernment, Thyatira, you know, in Sardis, they have works, but they aren't really believing, and so their works are just empty, kind of reminiscent of the way the church was in the days of the prophets, where the Lord would say, yeah, you have your worship and all of your rituals, but your heart is far from me. Yeah, That's also the same thing with the church in Philadelphia, and of course, Laodicea is the church that is probably the most well-known in terms of its condition. I wish you were hot or cold, hmm. but since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Exactly. And so he says, write these things to these churches, which are then, it's a synecdoche, a part for the whole. These churches represent the churches of Asia Minor. And here are the problems that are endemic among them. And it's because they're not holding fast to me. And then he goes through in an apocalyptic imagery, but it reminds me of something you see, like say in the book of Hosea, where you have the first three chapters of the book of Hosea is a story, and then the rest of the book is this courtroom setting where God says, let me tell you how my just wrath is burning against your sin. And so the rest of the book of Revelation is this series of cycles of seven. Each of these cycles of seven is to show God's sovereignty over the affairs of man, his sovereignty certainly over whatever Domitian thought he was capable of. But in the midst of all of those seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals, etc., where Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment through these seven cycles of sevens, I am the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed forward to. And in the midst of it, you also have covenantal fulfillment sprinkled throughout that suddenly, though you've got Rome with Christians, you know, under their control, it would appear, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to submit to this king. As we continue to read along, especially as we start moving toward the end of the book of Revelation, we realize, as J.R.R. Tolkien would say, the hands of the king are healing hands, Mm -hmm. because this Jesus is going to wipe away every tear, and he's going to make all things new. Mm -hmm. Well, how can he do that? Because he holds the keys of death and hell. And so there's something really, really neat here as well, because you get to the end of the book of Revelation, and we see after he has shown his sovereignty and his power and his wrath over all of the forces of evil, over false religion, over false government, over everything that would persecute and threaten to undo the church that Judas said fight against, Peter said fight against it, defend against it. Jesus says, look, yeah, you fight, you fight, you go ahead and fight, but I'm the one with my sword drawn out in front of you. So it's very similar like to Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua sees this figure in the distance with his sword drawn, and Joshua says, are you for me or against me? And that figure says, you're asking the wrong question. Mm -hmm. I'm asking the questions here. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And that's the one that Jesus saw. Only now, 
And this ties into our benediction from Jude 24 and 25. All authority is his now. He Mm -hmm. can stand before John in complete authority, Mm -hmm. right? And John falls at his feet like a dead man. Jesus says, look, I'm coming to completely reign and defend my church. And then when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, and it gives way to that, that heavenly imagery, and we had the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the movie for which the Lord's yep. Supper is the trailer. <laughs> it's like the rehearsal dinner. Yeah. Right? In that sense, you come to the Lord's table and you take the bread and the wine, and what you're getting is the rehearsal dinner. But isn't it interesting that what we are being given there is not just something that calls us to look back, to remember Christ, but to look forward. Yeah. And it's a physical thing. And it's an intimate thing. What is more intimate than eating? You're taking something outside of you and putting it inside of you. Yeah. And it is a picture and an affirmation of the goodness of our physicality and a promise that our physicality is going to continue. And we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is going to be the fulfillment. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, in part, why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, because we're celebrating, we're getting ready for our festal gathering. We're getting yeah. ready to put our wedding dress on, as yeah. it were. And you start moving into this imagery here where Jesus is saying, look, I've told you, and I'm going to make it completely clear. I have bound Satan. He is defeated. I am now the judge. I'm sitting on the great white throne in my judgment. And what I have been taking us toward, what I've been taking us toward ever since the first Adam screwed things up in Genesis 3 is Revelation 21. And so in effect, and what is that? the new heaven and new earth, right. which is what? The garden city temple. So there's a sense in which the whole Bible from Genesis straight mm-hmm. through to the maps is held together by Jesus' commitment to reign as king in his temple among us. And we are going to be now redeemed, glorified, taking and eating of the leaves of the tree of life, confirming that we will never again be susceptible to sin and sickness and sorrow. Death will be no more. Every tear is wiped away. But what that does then, since he's promised to wipe away every tear, that promise in Revelation means that everything else in the Bible about our tears means that our tears have meaning now. They're significant. And they're they're, they're significant, and they're not arbitrary. Mm -hmm. But there's going to come a point where he's going to wipe them away. But right now, they are precious to him, and they are significant. They are not arbitrary, but there is that promise. There will be no more mourning, no crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I'll tell you, as a pastor, my greatest privilege, right, and I have a lot of them, being here with y'all is a great privilege. That's why when you called, I said, absolutely, it's a great privilege. But my greatest privilege as a pastor is being at deathbeds and holding the hands of saints mm-hmm. as they draw their lives, being with families at gravesides. There's no higher privilege. Yeah. And when I'm able to say to them, this isn't just David Filson's opinion. This is the word of God. That's there right. is going to come a day where there will be no more death, no mourning, no crying. And for people who have truly mourned, mm-hmm. man, that's significant. Yeah. That is significant. For people who have truly suffered pain, this is significant. And so I love being able to say to them, look, I know it looks like we're in a cemetery. We're on burial ground. This is resurrection ground, and we're not disposing of a body. Christian burial is never the disposal of any. We dispose of stuff we don't like. Mm -hmm. This is not the disposal of anything. This is a deposit for safekeeping. 1 Corinthians 15, we're making a resurrection deposit because Jesus is going to make a resurrection withdrawal, and Romans 8, our resurrection is going to have a resurrection ripple effect. The earth is going to be transformed. We're going to be at a wedding, and we're going to go, wow, our tears have been wiped away. We don't mourn. We don't cry anymore. There is no more death. And that's our hope. And that's why, say, Christian funeral 
And going to the cemetery as Christians is never the acquiescence to death. It's a faith-filled defiance of death. Yeah. It really is a testimony that that ground we are standing on is going to be transformed in the new heaven and new earth, and the graves are going to give way to a wedding. Those are the kind of things that are held out to huh. us in, yeah. in Revelation. Yeah, that's Behold, right. I'm making all things new. And then he says again, write this down for these things are trustworthy and yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believe that's me. That's right. Yeah. And verse six, our key verse for Revelation, I think can be a benediction over our conversation today. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. I mean, that's the story. Well, I wish that we could go on and on and on. You are such a fun guest to have. Thank you so it's my feathery much. Plume is I know what it is. you guys have to go to the show notes and see a photo of what David is wearing today. It is amazing. There is we we said feather. And he said no, no, it's a plume. It's a so plume. listen, uh, this series. I've been talking to everybody that'll hear. It has been transformative for me. It has been formational for me. It has been beautiful to walk from Genesis to Revelation in this way. I love for our community who typically goes through a book of the Bible in, you know, three to five weeks to have done this in this what feels like rapid succession. I hope this will be this thing that we get to point back to as a community Mm -hmm. and remember what we learned and have the context for the things that we're going to read, that what we've done here will be a resource for our community and for people who come after us, that they they can see what's happening from Genesis to Revelation. And David, you were such a huge part of that. So thank you so much. My pleasure and my honor. Well, next week, we're going to be not doing five to seven books in one week. We're actually opening the book of Deuteronomy as a community. And I'm so excited to to get to go slow again and to go into that. I mean, give us a word about Deuteronomy. What do we have to look forward to as we open that book next week? Deuteronomy, which seems so foreign and strange with laws, and it's oftentimes one of those books that when somebody says, I'm going to read the whole Bible, Deuteronomy is where they just It'll like... It'll slow you down. They, they, yeah. yeah. It's like swimming through molasses, they think. Here's the message Deuteronomy holds out to your readers. They are the apple of God's eye. Ooh, You'll see it. Yeah. Oh, guys. It's going to be good. That. I love that. <laughs> okay. Well, y'all, come back next week to read in the book of Deuteronomy how you are the apple of God's eye. And until next week, David, what do we tell our friends? Keep opening your Bibles. 